That's so differentiating. No one else is doing that. That is so extraordinarily powerful. And because it's not dramatic, people just under-invest in that in their lives all the time. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. If you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. In this episode, have a delightful and inspiring conversation with Elliot Pepper. Elliot is a novelist, the author of 11 successful books, including Bandwidth, Reaper, and most recently Foundry, attracting praise from many publications and uh, leading people, including uh, New York Times Book Review, Seth Godin, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many others. And I have personally uh, very much enjoyed his novels and uh, gained inspiration from them. He also works on special projects for startup founders and has worked as entrepreneur and resident at a venture capital fund. You can find more on his work at elliotpepper.com. That's E-L-I-O-T-P-E-P-E-R. And in this uh, conversation, we talk about how he writes science fiction and uh, communicates the spaces which allow us to envisage possibilities, information feeds, which is a theme of uh, a series of his books, how to inhabit the edge and to discover weird anomalies, and these final part of the podcast is this wonderful session on these habits for better cognition, which uh, I found very useful, and I'm sure you will too. So stay tuned for a wonderful conversation with Elliot Pepper. Elliot, it's awesome to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've uh, very much enjoyed your uh, science fiction novels, uh, really both very engaging and also this very very compelling view of uh, possible futures. And very, very much information focus, and it really evokes a lot of the ideas which I've explored around how do we make sense of a world when there's a, an unlimited amount of information. So, so one of the uh, ideas in a couple of your, well, in several of your books is is the feed. So, tell us what is the feed? Yeah, so um, the, you can imagine the feed like Google plus. ChatGPT plus uh, Apple, Amazon, all your favorite big internet names stitched together times a thousand. That basically there is a uh, a ubiquitous digital membrane that sort of is right there with you um, alongside your experience of the physical world. Um, and that acts like a piece of almost invisible infrastructure to modern life. Um, and 
uh, and and so in the book, I actually, you know, one of the interesting things um, about writing science fiction is that when you uh, imagine a new technology or, or or some new, you know, new thing that is very normal to the characters in the future the story takes place in, you have to figure out how do I reveal this to a reader in my own time in a way that makes sense. And so actually there's sort of a, a, a set piece in, in that trilogy, the analog trilogy. Um, and, uh, and it's a social club called analog. It's actually where the trilogy gets its name. And at this social club, everything is immediately off grid. I mean, it's basically like you walk through the door and the feed entirely drops away. And it's one of those, you know, as a, it, it, it's fun to write scenes there, but it also provides me as a as a science fiction writer with a really useful tool, which is that sometimes, you know, technology is most visible when it breaks, right? And um, in in this case, when you have people living their lives and you know their work, they feel like everything is sort of permeated by this digital layer to to your physical existence. That having that torn away from you is is a very um, new and strange experience. And so a reader in today's world can read that character's experience of having that sort of like digital veil sort of pulled back. And only then do you sort of realize the extent to which that the feed has influences everyone's lives, not just in sort of like the uh, like plot specific moments in the story, but their day-to-day lives, every, everyone living in that future's life. Um, and so I, I think that that was one thing I thought about a lot while, um, while writing those books. And, and um, you know, in some ways, it's sort of funny. One of the most common questions I get asked um, from fans of those books is, well, what does the feed actually look like, right? Like, what, like, what's, like what's the physical instantiation of it? And I actually... Um, very intentionally never gave like a, uh, a very granular description of, for example, the human computer interface that people are using in the books. Um, and, uh, and I did that on purpose. And um, th- the reason is twofold. Uh, one is that it's sort of most of the technologies that are most important to us or that provide sort of a basis for the lives we live, we most people don't think about it at all, right? Like, I don't think about plumbing very often, but I use it every day. And boy, would life be different in a modern city without modern plumbing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, you, you, like when I drive to get a burrito for lunch, I... I think I'd never have actually thought about like the functioning of like the internal combustion engine in my car that like gets me to the Mexican restaurant and back. Um, and there's sort of a bit of a trope in some science fiction novels where um, the author is really interested in um, imagining new forms of technology, but the characters like sort of ha- like may not, I mean, unless they're a mechanic slash, or, you know, like, unless they're really dealing with a problem like that right now, why would they be thinking about it? And so for the the way w- in which I approach writing stories set in the future is trying to think like the people living their lives in that future. And uh, this is sort of like one of those aspects. So um, 
I went into it thinking from the character's perspective about that. But there's also a cool thing that comes out the bat, which is that because the feed is ubiquitous, plays a large role in the story and the world the story is set in, but is never described in like specific detail, it actually invites the reader to be a creative participant in the story. That when you read these books, like you're seeing the impact, the human impact of the technology, and you yourself are imagining the form factor of the technology. And one of my favorite things as a writer is hearing from readers who all have their own ideas about what the feed literally looks like. And they're all very different from each other and all totally fascinating and useful. And I just think that's like uh, a really special thing that science fiction can do because it gives us now in our present new metaphors for like making sense of the sort of accelerating technological change we're looking, we're living through. It's sort of like, I often think, how could you ever have had a useful conversation about state surveillance before 1984 came out, right? Like even to just sort of get the idea of like ubiquitous state surveillance, you'd need to spend hours just like getting on the same page, right? Like what are we even talking about here? Um, But that novel created a cultural anchor that allowed people to go to have conversations about real world state surveillance much more quickly and much more deeply, right? Because you just have this simulacrum of what things might look like that you can use as a reference. And so that's sort of, that excites me a lot as a writer and as a reader, right? Like I, that's why I love reading books like this um, to, to sort of get access to yeah. those. And that's sort of part of what the feed is there for. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, more broadly, uh, reading is a highly creative act. So that's one of the great things about uh, reading as opposed to more immersive entertainment. But as you say, you know, for uh, science fiction writing, if done well, can be like a palimpsest for the right reader to create their own worlds and imagine those. And I think I love how you get that feedback loop of uh, what people make with the, the the blank spaces you've allowed in your your writing to to imagine that. So if we think forward to the the feed, what, I suppose one characteristic of that is that it is deeply useful for everyone. It is also ubiquitous, and it is monolithic, as in as one organization. Yeah. So I, I suppose yeah. I'm interested in thinking a couple of things. One, one is. Sure. Where we've got now is many organizations attempting to provide feeds to us in various guises, all of them with, uh, let's say, vested interests, uh, yeah. financial and otherwise. And so, what a, and, you know, I, mean, I suppose one of the ideas is what are the pathways? How is it that we might from here be able to get to a place where we have feeds that are truly? completely focused on creating value for the user. Mm. And, well, they don't need to be, you know, I suppose, uh, essentially, you know, essentially monopolies. But you know, what was that path to where we can get these feeds that are completely uh, focused on creating value to user from where we stand today? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that I, I can think of sort of like two pathways. So, like if you, like in, I, I live in California, and on, on, the, uh, on the internet I inhabit, 
Um, there isn't sort of an everything app, but like if you look at WeChat in China or something like that, th- that's almost a lot closer um, in some ways to what the feed is just because it, you know, y- you can do everything from chat to transactions to just a million different things all in one app. Um, and And so like an easy answer to that question would be, well, like as sort of some of the internet political economics sort of plays out over the next 20 years, there's going to be a lot of aggregation of like currently independent um, services into larger, like larger companies, basically, like which uh, you can look at many other, like look at the energy industry or something like that, like on a longer time horizon, right? And it really had tons of consolidation and really just is only has a few major players in the world today. but that's the easy answer. I think that the more interesting answer is uh, is to take one step back. So, like, if you like, uh, you know, I'm sure that some of your uh, some of your listeners are computer scientists or programmers or developers, and um, you know, one concept, one metaphor that I really love from the like my friends who write code is the idea that you're always reaching for new levels of abstraction, right? That you there's a problem, you try to solve it, but you try to solve it in a way that could be used to solve any problem of that category rather than only that problem. That's what makes the code useful. Then you're writing, you know, then now you're dealing with like a, a new layer of abstraction above, above what you're originally thinking about. And I try to do that with, uh, with my fiction. So when I think about the feed, I think like if you read business news today or tech news today, it's all about like Apple did this or like, you know, uh, this new AI tool like is doing something cool or isn't this scary? It's like all focused on the players, right? But it's not focused on the game. And the feed is the game, not the players. So like rather than thinking about Google versus Apple versus all the sort of like consumer brands that you associate the internet with, think about the internet itself as a system where there are just different people building stuff on it with different incentives and different reasons. And they're trying to create value in their own ways, sometimes often failing, right? Like often not being successful, but that overall it's the system of all of that code working in conjunction, all of those, uh, you know, processors just like, like working away in the servers we never see. And not just that, but all the people who work for the institutions that develop that stuff, right? So like, if you're an employee of Google, you're sort of part of the feed, right? Like you could make an argument that, you know, you're actually working for the internet or like, you know, there's just, you can, you can view your employment in different ways. Um, And I try to think of that and and like all the, the laws that are written about how the internet is used. Like all of that is part of this meta system. And I look at that meta system and called it the fee. So it is in the, in the novels. Yes, you're right. Like that feed is controlled by a single, very large institution. But I think that that's actually less important than it appears up front because, like, 
the reality is that even if you did have a huge institution that somehow like sort of like uh, shepherded all of that infrastructure, in reality, the people, the people doing the work have their own incentives and they're not, you know, they're all trying to provide value in different ways that often conflict with each other. So like, it, it's like, like you could make an argument that that just wouldn't even work very differently, right? That you could, you could almost just look at today's like internet computer ecosystem, call that the feed. And we're like almost there. <laughs> well, exactly. And so, which goes, goes to my, to my next question. So you're a science fiction writer. You keep, uh, have to keep across the edge of change and be ahead of that. So as you, as you say, essentially we all have access to our own feeds and the way, the way I put it in uh, thriving on overload is that we've, uh, you know, shifting our mindset from overload to abundance, as in we have all of the information we could possibly want, but the onus is on us individually to be able to piece that together and use it well, to be able to, you know, make it not, one of overload, but one where just the right information comes to us. So how do, how do you piece together what you uh, have to create your own uh, feed in your life? Ah, okay. So not how did I come up with the idea of the feed, but how do no, I no, actually... What, what is your day by oh, day? Oh, got what it. Is, okay, is... cool. Um, okay, so you know there are a few things that I think about a lot um, that help me with that. I mean, like, Readers probably can notice that if they read that trilogy, part of the arc of that trilogy is like me coming to terms with the question you just asked, right? Like me trying to figure out some of that stuff for myself in my life. And obviously that's like externalized and dramatized in the story, but like, I, like everyone struggles with this. So there are a few things that like I try to do that I find help and they're like, there's, they seem really uh, simple, but I feel like most important things in life are really simple, but them being simple doesn't mean they're easy. That's the problem, right? Like, yeah. like they're simple, but they're difficult. <laughs> yeah. uh, so like one of them is just like do less, like, like if you don't, if you don't want to feel overloaded, like just do don't be busy like just choose not to be busy and like I'll, I'll give you a personal example from my life right now like i just had a new novel come out last month and when you publish a book the there's like it feels it, like you it seems like you should be doing a lot to like promote it like you should be going on podcasts like this you should be um you know, writing essays for magazines, you should be on social media, like sort of like talking, you know, like, how can I help spread the word about my book? Um, but like the weird thing is that I've only sort of like learned through trial and error uh, is like the thing that a, that a book's success actually depends on is readers who love it telling their friends. Like that is what that's that's how I discovered my next favorite book. Right. I mean, I think that's and like everyone I know, basically, that's like someone they trust recommending it is like how they read a new book. Right. And so like yeah. if that's how I read new books and how other people read new books, like and then like what are all these articles and blog, but, you know, like what is all this extra ephemera that I'm investing a significant amount of time in doing when 
I know, like I very much know, like because they tell me and because I feel this way as a reader about my favorite authors, that I want one thing from my favorite authors and my readers want one thing from me, which is the next book, right? Like that's what they like to like, that's what they want more. Like, sure, it's cool you publish an essay in the Atlantic, but like, where's the next novel, right? Like that's sort of the, the overall vibe, but like all of that activity that feels really crucial can totally destroy your calendar, right? Like, like all the time, like time is the one really crucial zero sum game. And if I am investing a bunch of time in all of that stuff, it means I'm not writing the next book. And so, um, doing less, uh, lets you like, uh, increase this cognitive space you have to do what's actually important. And so that's something that like, I think about a lot. I, and I also think about it in conjunction with caring more. Um, a few years ago, I visited Bordeaux for the first time with my wife. So it's just like a medium sized city in the South of France. And something that really struck me walking around the streets of Bordeaux was all the little like neighborhood shops, right? That like have a window display on a sidewalk. All of them, the window displays were amazing, like whimsical, like evocative. Like it it was almost like if you ever had to make a diorama in school where you like made, you know, little figurines, like it's like whoever owned the shopkeepers were like, winning gold medals for their like shop window equivalents of dioramas. And I'm like, this is not what San Francisco looks like. Like you walk around San Francisco, it's like there's this sort of, it either feels like thrown together like an afterthought or like it's some lame template come up that some consultant, you know, like a marketing consultant came up with and it's just very generic. Um, But like walking around, there's so much personality in each of these shop windows, which then makes you want to go in, right? You're like, wow, this is just magical. I want to like, what is in here? And so like they care so much that like, like that that becomes a competitive advantage. Like actually caring is a competitive advantage. And like, there are so many opportunities in our lives, both our personal lives, our work, all that stuff to take the easy path, right? To say, oh, well, like I could do, I could do X, but like, that's going to be a lot of work. So I'll just settle for like industry standard. Right. Um, or like, you know, I like that, like this, like this seems like it'll get the response we want. So let's just do it rather than thinking like, wait a minute, who are we actually serving here? What, like what matters to them? Like, how is this a gift? How is this a generous act rather than a selfish act? And like, that takes a lot of emotional labor and you can only afford to care more if you're doing less. <laughs> so that's why those are like a loop for me, if that makes sense. Very quick break to point you to amplifyingcognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thoughtweaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. Now back to the show. 
So in terms of just information inputs, I mean, do mm. you have any habits or structures to mm. not just yeah. your sources, but also how it is you pull that together into your you know, your your cognition, into your thinking, into your sense making. If you're looking out to the edge, you know, how do you see the signals? You know, what what where do you take in and how do you discern what it is that is meaningful and useful and gives you insight into where things are going? So I have a friend who's a, a photographer and um, he is uh, very diff, very annoying to go on hikes with because we'll go on a hike. And, you know, you're just sort of like getting, you, you're, you know, you're away from any cars, you're in nature and, um, and you're sort of just getting into a rhythm. You're talking about something. It's beautiful. And then suddenly he stops and he spends five minutes like taking at like a, and a really up like, like detailed photograph of like, a, of a fern frog, right? Like of, of a single macro thing and and so then you're sort of standing around and then you you know you walk for another 10 minutes and then oh look at this ladybug right um and i mean i love him to death i love going hiking with him but it's like a funny experience right because you're you're you just don't make much progress um uh but i think that what he does with uh sort of photography is basically like what I seek to do with fiction, where when I'm uh, writing a novel, basically like the, the way to, I don't know, to see the edge is to like inhabit it, <laughs> right? Like, like I'm not, I mean, there are, there are many different kinds of, of ways to write stories. And like some of them are like entirely fantastical, which are amazing. Like I love reading stories that are just set in fully imagined worlds. Um, and some are like completely grounded in today's reality. Right. Um, and my books are somewhere in between. They're like, they're like very grounded in the world we inhabit, but like they play with it. They like twist things. They it's like a jazz musician who's, riffing on a standard where you're like, okay, this is, this is our world, but there are these different ingredients. There's this, this evolution has happened. And like that invites the reader to have this gap between the world they inhabit and the world of the story. And that gap is delicious, right? Like that gap, like invites you to imagine what might be possible and like how fragile the status quo really is. So for me, when I'm trying to invent the status quo of the story, when I'm trying to like think about the the story and its ingredients and like what how that world looks, like basically I'm just trying to pay really close attention to like weird anomalies in my own life. And that might be like I read something and I'm like, oh, that's odd. Or it might be a personal experience. Like actually, this is a good example. Like what happened the wh where the feed came from is I just like this was in 2016. So it was like this was in the US. This is when it was like the Trump Clinton election. And so the uh, election coverage was just totally overwhelming. It was like 
the you, you could you just couldn't escape it. It's like the media landscape was just overflowing with election coverage. And like I was so sick of it. Not because I don't care about like democracy or something, but because like reading like who sneezed on the bus like doesn't matter to democracy, right? Um, and that's what most of the coverage was, hot air. And so at that time, I made a very conscious decision where I was like, I'm basically just going to like cut, you know, 90% of the time that I was spending reading the news and, and being on social media. And I'm just going to read more books instead because they don't, they don't, they aren't covered in this one silly, like overreported event. And so, uh, I found that to be enormously useful. Like I, was happier. I had better ideas. I had different ideas. Like it, it was led to much more interesting and productive conversations with the people I love and my friends, right? Like suddenly you just have, you're immersing yourself in different worlds and you can come back and share where you learn. So that, that was a very striking experience for me and made me think about the power of algorithms and, and feeds and the, the information landscape that we are all living in all the time and sort of that, the feedback loop with culture. And so that's sort of where the fee began was me experiencing that. So I was just paying a lot of attention to my own experience and then thinking like, oh, wow, like what if you turn this up a notch? So in terms of providing sort of, I think there's probably some follow-on from there. You earlier said your simple but difficult advice was to do less and care more. <laughs> <laughs> I have more. Yeah, I could keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so it's kind of to round out, sort of what, what, what are the other sort of bits of advice, the things which are simple, difficult, but people have got to sort that out for themselves. But what's the simple things which people can do to, to make better sense of the world? Okay, so uh, I'll just go through this sort of quickly as a hit list. And this is just based on my experience as a writer. And and uh, seeing friends who make other things, right? Whether they're writing code, whether they're inventing new products, whether they're scientists, whether they are activists, whatever, right? So just like what helps you get, like make the most of this, the, the only life that like we get to live. And I, I was thinking of this in conjunction with your sort of prompts of, what does it mean to like amplify cognition? Like what can actually help you think differently or think better? And so one of them is just like, get good sleep. Like it's amazing how much not getting good sleep sabotages everything else in your life, right? Like, um, like if, if you don't sleep well, you're much more likely to like get a cold. If you get a cold and your toddler gets a cold, now they can't go to daycare. Like your whole week just got nuked, right? So like, th like that's a funny example. But like in so many ways, like I feel like uh, there are so many people um, sacrifice sleep because they think that they're doing something that that is sort of feels more urgent than sleeping, and in doing so, they really undermine what's important and and frankly their own enjoyment of the things they do as well. So get more sleep. Um, another one is like spend less than you earn. All, these are all like so silly, but like, it's amazing how, like, if you 
are experiencing financial stress, it is really hard to have additional cognitive capacity because all of your background thoughts are like, I need to be able to pay rent. Like I need you, right? Like there's, there's always this like question, this pressure on your thinking. And so, um, if it, and one way to overcome that, which a lot of people think about is I need to make more money, but like another way that is not mutually exclusive is spend less, <laughs> right? Like it's a, like, actually, I think like one of the amazing and sort of under talked about things that technology has done in the past 50 years is made most things much cheaper, right? Like, like, yes, there is dramatic income inequality, like especially in the US. And even if you account for that and inflation, like most of the daily things that we need to buy are much, much cheaper than they used to be. And if you live a really moderate lifestyle and that allows you to have some savings, boy, do those savings help your cognition because it just means that you don't have that background routine running where you're like, oh my God, what if? So I think that's another really important one. I think another one is like build your community of friends. Like we like and like do that in really literal ways. Like I feel like one of the sort of uh tricks that the recent internet companies have pulled on us is is this almost like that you could it's not that you can't make friends online, but they're like I feel like like the internet is a great place to get connected to people, but like you need to go deeper than that. And like so much of your thinking is influenced by the people you surround yourself with and like the depth of the connections you're able to form with them. So like my wife and I spend a significant part of like our like annual like like free time like arranging and then participating in like group events. Like we literally just got back from like a five-day camping trip with 30 people that like I organized. And like we do that with mul- multiple times a year with like, and other friends do that too. So then you build this really rich dynamic set of relationships. And I think that the internet has allowed us to live much more lonely lives because you always have a phone. The feed is always there for you, right? So if the feed is always there for you, like there's less of, the, it's not as like, y- you have to make the effort to say, that's cool. Like, I like the feed being there for me. And like, we all like, we could do more than this. Right. Um, so I think that's a, a really crucial one. Um, and then I think that like the last thing I would say, which is maybe like the meta or a meta thing that like uh, you can apply to all the things I just said is I feel like some people, like people get motivation in different ways, right? Like for some people, it's like, I want to run an ultra marathon. So I'm going to do this training routine. I'm going to, you know, do all of the things. And they're motivated by achieving the goal of the ultra marathon. And so they sort of go from goal to goal, right? It's like you do that and then you climb the higher mountain, right? And like, if that works for you, that is awesome. So like, keep doing it. Um, For me, I find that. I sort of approach it almost in the opposite direction where um, what I do is I try to think about like my daily habits, like things I do every day. Um, And 
I try to optimize that. So as an example, um, like there are breaks between books, but when I am writing a new novel, I try to write more or less every day. And I'm not super strict about it. Totally fine if I miss a day, but like, because it's a daily habit, if I miss more than one day, I feel, I'm like, "Mm, I don't feel great about it. Right. And then, you know, if you miss two days, like then now you really need to get back into it. And I make it easy. Like I don't need to be productive. Like I, I, or I can write one sentence and I'm happy, right. That counts. But what is important is that it's just part of my daily ritual, part of my daily routine. For me, another big example of that is like exercise. I I surf. And so I try to get in the water every day. Do I surf literally every day? No, but it feels like that's part of my routine, right? Where uh, I basically surf every day. I basically write every day. I eat, you know, eat with my family every day, right? Like, like, um, I try to think about my days more than I think about my year, my weeks or my months or my years or my decades. Um, and the reason why that works for me, I'm not saying it'll work for everyone, but the reason why it works for me is because all of those things compound, right? It's like, it's just like compound interest. It's not like in, I mean, Think about the things I work on. I'm, I'm writing novels. Like they're such big prod. These are multi-year projects, creative projects, right? Like you can't write a novel in it. You can't write a novel as a heroic act of just extending yourself to the max. You have to write a novel in one sentence at a time, one pa- one page at a time over a really extended period of time. And like sometimes you feel excited about doing it that day. Sometimes you don't, but you do it anyway. Right. Like, like, but because it's a habit, like you, like over time, those add up. And even though I maybe only wrote one sentence, like last month, my 11th novel came out and like, that's how I've written them. Um, and I think that that applies to so many aspects of life that if you do small things that feel insignificant, but you do them consistently then what you're doing is you're inviting time on your side. And like, if there's one thing, if there's one skill that, that few people are, have really developed in our modern world living in the feed, it's patience, right? And, and so if you choose to be patient, if you choose to just take advantage of those like simple, that simple concept of compounding interest with whatever you're working on and care about, like that's so differentiating. No one else is doing that, right? Like it's like, what is it? I think Warren Buffett, 90 or something ridiculous. It's like 99% of his net wealth accrued after his 65th birthday. And so it's like, if, you know, if you were talking to him 20 years ago, he would be totally unremarkable. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't famous. He was just like another private equity investor. Um, and the reason why he is famous is that he started investing when he was like 11 years old. So he's literally had compounding interest. Like he just has an extra 15 years on his competitors <laughs> because he started as a yeah. child, right? So like, you don't need to aim for that because if you're listening to this, I don't know how many 11 year olds are listening to us right now. So like, 
I, I'm not. I'm not saying that you that you've you're, you've lost, <laughs> um, but I do think that like the that is so extraordinarily powerful, and because it's not dramatic, um, people just under invest in that in their lives all the time. Um, so yeah, so think about those daily habits. So you know, some of what you were saying there. Actually, I wrote a post and sort of one of my big themes around Zen and the art of creating the future, which is See? about. You're living in the present, but creating the future, and they're not there. There's no, they are entirely reconcilable. But you know, if you if you ever think you want to write a nonfiction book, then I think what you've just laid out in the <laughs> second half of this podcast could uh, very readily make a best-selling. <laughs> That's very sweet. <laughs> well, I'll know I'll know who to send a copy to if I ever do. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> it's, been, it's been delightful, uh, Elliot, and I, I think you know part of the insights there are, are also around this creative act. You know, the act of creating novels and you know, working and being able to pull the ideas into something which is concrete as well as the way in which you're taking the information in. So thank you so much for your uh, insights. I'll be reading more of your novels and uh, I recommend them highly to my uh, to everyone listening. Uh, thanks so much, Elliot, and have the rest of your wonderful rest of your day. Well, thank you so much for having me. Your questions are a pleasure and I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com, where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful day.